Hello and welcome to the MacaFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Dustin Holiday, And we're your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Yeah, All perfect. Right. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> so we got, uh, we got Dustin here. Uh, Dustin is a production line engineer at MacroFab. Yes. Uh, and we wanted to bring him on and, and have a chat about uh, what you do at MacroFab and, and uh, how everything's going. Yeah, it's pretty cool to be here. I've always wanted to do a podcast. So it's it's pretty cool of you of you guys to to invite me. Cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dustin is a recent graduate of the University of Houston. Yes. With a uh, ECE degree. Yes. Yes. What was your uh, favorite thing at? Well, favorite class, I guess. Favorite. Well, the, it was the, pretty much the last class I took, which was embedded systems. Okay. Cool. The the maze robot. We built a robot to solve a maze. With. The, uh, oh yeah, I remember that you had it using in the a shop. right turn algorithm. You, you had it in the shop. Yeah, I had a very very early version of it uh, at the shop. It it wasn't really working well then, but <laughs> we we eventually did get it to work pretty well. It was for, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was the only thing we did in that class was was build and design a robot to solve a maze. There's no exams or anything, and I really loved that. That's, that sounds like a perfect class. Yeah, it sounds like all you do is get to work on electronics. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, so you graduated in December. Yes, in December. Uh, and uh, what was your, what was the focus of your engineering degree? So, uh, yeah, I focused in embedded systems, and I took a bunch of controls. Well, two controls classes too. So, kind yeah, of focus well, on controls too. If you take two in college, and and that's considered a focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an expert now. So yeah, absolutely. I think I took one controls <laughs> class, and I'm like, that is done for me. <laughs> I actually like that stuff. It's really interesting. Automation. We're going to be doing maybe a little bit of that at MacroFab. Yeah, a little bit of automation at MacroFab. Yeah. A lot of bit of automation at MacroFab. Yeah. And MacroFab is kind of automated. Yeah. In a, in but a, the front end is, yes. Yeah, right, yeah. right. We're going to take it to the next level, hopefully. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, Dustin, um, step us through uh, a day at MacroFab. What, what, what do you do at MacroFab? So, at MacroFab, I program the, the solder paste jet printing machine and the pick and place machine and the selective solder machine that we have. And also, uh, I also help run it, troubleshoot uh, the problems that the machine is having, and also help with uh, with the technicians if any, any issues that they have, contacting the customers and solving the issues and stuff like that. So, so you're basically uh, a technical engineering help for all of the manufacturing floor. Yes, pretty much. Um, what, what's your favorite machine that you get to work on? I really like our pick and place machine. It's the pick and place? it is fantastic. A little, a little bit more difficult to, to operate than the pace the pace jetter, but uh, it's it's a really interesting machine. I read that there there's some of the most complex robotics used in industry, commonly. I doesn't that wouldn't surprise yeah, me? Wouldn't surprise yeah. me at all. These these things are, are insane. Yeah, especially the uh, tolerances involved when you have to place an 01005 component part. Yeah, I don't even see how that's possible, but it does it. Yeah, it does pretty it. easily. No or, problem. Or the fact that that the head has to go and pick up a handful of components. And then it just zips across the the rails without moving the components at all, or tossing them, or, or jostling them, and hits them dead center when you ask it to. Oh yeah, super su- super smooth motion. And it's, uh, uses magnetic rails for its. Yeah, it uses a maglev kind of system. Yeah, yeah it's instead of uh, really ball and screw. Yeah, or no, belt. no screws or chains or belts or anything like that. Just yep. Kind of floats across. Yeah, it's. it's so, it's definitely a step above our old machine, which was a universal GSM, yeah. which was really cool. It just was definitely showing its age. Yeah. yeah and it a- had two heads. Yeah, two heads. And it was slower than, than the newer. Yes. Yeah. That thing's a dinosaur. So, <laughs> a dinosaur. so what goes into uh, programming the machines? 
So we we start out with uh, with our batcher output, which is takes all the customer's data and, and batches them into one file. So I have uh, X Y coordinates and rotations for each part on the board or on the entire panel, which is a series of boards. Um, so I use that to to tell the the machine where to where to place the parts and what part exactly to place. Um, and uh, the paste jetter. Uh, we use the the batcher's Gerber output, which is a, a digital representation of the of the board's layout, and we use the solder paste layer to to tell the machine where to print the paste, so it perfectly fills in the pads. Um, cool. So so you have you have control. I guess, I guess you you take in a customer's paste files, and then you have control over every pad and how it goes and squirts yes. out paste on each one. Yes. Down to down to the pad, even down to each individual dot that it places, you have control over. Wow! Each, each dot is zero point three three millimeters, I believe, or something like that. Yeah, we've got it to um, paste a point uh, four millimeter um, QFP and point four millimeter BGAs before. Oh yeah, yeah. It we've, gets really it gets really tight, but it does work. Yeah. It's, so so it's it's a really big, really heavy, really expensive inkjet printer. It's yeah, basically. It's an yeah. inkjet printer that prints solder paste. It yes. actually works really similar to the inkjet because it actually uses a piezo in the head. Yes. To basically shoot out the stuff. Yeah. It, doesn't it? Um, doesn't it give like a little burst of air into the nozzle and that releases a dot of uh, of paste? You uh, well, it uses a piezo to to freaking uh, what do you call it? Auger it out. Oh really? Okay, I, th- I thought I thought it gave a little pressurized. It does, it burst does have of air. vacuum, like when the when the dots come out of the nozzle, um, they break apart a little bit. So it, the the smaller nodules, it sucks back up into the head into a filter box. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, so in between each dot, it's sucking stuff back in, it's pulsing back and forth. Pretty wow. cool. That's pretty crazy. Another another cool thing about it is that uh, it actually releases the dots before the head goes over the pad. So it's like a dive bomber. Uh, if you think uh, military like uh, bomber planes, they they release the bomb far before the target, and it's, it has a uh, parabolic trajectory down. So it so arcs little balls of yes. solder. Yes, it does. Yeah, because it's moving so fast, it has to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it can it can basically paste up our panels in about a minute and a half. Yeah. So it's pretty fast. It has some limitations, though. I mean. Uh, it's kind of slow. It's a lot. It's a lot slower than uh, than stencil printing. Because stencil printing, you just you just wipe a wipe a squeegee across it and it's done. But well, if you if you think about runtime and efficiency, I mean, it blows a stencil printer out of the water. Uh, efficiency and solder quality, it does absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because the great thing about it is you don't waste paste with that machine. No. Whereas if you if you chunk some stuff all in the stencil printer, at the end of the day you gotta throw that paste away. Yeah. Right. Well, and and the paste we use is uh, has a uh, no clean flux in it. Yes. Yeah. So so that that reduces uh, post processing. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And the paste is like super expensive or super inexpensive. Um, Something like fifteen bucks a tube. I forget how many milliliters. Uh, it's one hundred and fifty milliliters. One hundred fifty milliliter tube for only fifteen bucks, and they have this stuff specially formulated so it can be shot out uh, <laughs> using jet printing techniques. Yeah, I was actually really surprised. It's basically the same price as a really good SAC three hundred five no clean paste. Yeah, but it's specially formulated for this machine. It's actually cheaper than the paste we used to buy in the in the cans. Cubs. Yeah, it is cheaper. Yep. So, and it's a tight. Five? No, it's a Type Three paste. 
Type 5, I think. Is it Type 5? Yeah. I can't remember. Type 5 has a uh, stricter tolerance on the ball size. Yeah. Of the pace. It might. It, it probably is Type 5. I'm fairly certain it is Type 5. Yeah. With with how precise that thing is and how fast it runs, it probably is. Yeah. Type 5 paced. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I really like the uh, no clean that it actually uses. So a lot of times, no clean is... Because we... For, for through hole, we do... Uh, water-based flux because it does work a lot better in our selective solder process mm -hmm. but when you go to wash it and you have no clean flux a lot of times the no clean will kind of dissolve but not really and so it gets all over your board and it looks like white mist yeah all over the board whereas this no clean flux kind of like it hardens up kind of on the surface mm -hmm. and it doesn't dissolve readily in water and so you can do a water process wash afterwards and be completely fine and not get any uh, cosmetic issues. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. I don't even think any of that no clean flux messes with the washer at all. It doesn't no. even doesn't even come off the board. Probably it does, actually does not. Yeah. Um, if you pull the boards out of the washer after a uh, selective solder run, um, and look under the scope, you can still see the no clean flux is basically makes a little, um, like a little, little yellow pool. Yeah, a little yellow yeah. pool on top of the uh, on top of the joint. So. It, and it you, can, you can actually hit it with like a tweezer and it'll crack and pop off. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like really hard. Yeah, it's I've never seen a no clean flux do that before. <laughs> works great. Yeah, it works great. We actually had to do that with the with the macro watches. We had to scrape flux off of it because it was pulling up too yeah, much on that. Yeah, because uh, on the macro watch we had a battery, um, well, coin cells in the back of them. Yeah, and I didn't make the pad big enough for the coin cell to touch it so we actually had to lay some paste on it and kind of raise that that pad up a bit and we did that and then we found out this was the flux was basically making a dome over it too yeah. and so we had to chip off 150 little well i guess little caps basically yeah. it was it was really annoying <laughs> hey you learn as it goes yeah mm -hmm. learn as it goes that was a trial by fire kind of project because it was like right when we got all our brand new machines and you have two weeks to implement two weeks to design implement yep. and, and program a, a binary watch <laughs> <laughs> you would think that that you, you look at two weeks on then you're like oh yeah i could do that and then you actually get into it and it's like oh my gosh yeah we <laughs> actually almost missed the deadline on that one yeah because we didn't have the wrist strap show up fast <laughs> enough isn't that funny how the wrist strap was the linchpin in the whole yeah. watch? <laughs> Basically, got hung up. They got hung up in uh, customs. It's always the mechanical aspects. Those are those yeah. Are never the blame the electrical guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were, were always right. We actually had it all done like three days before beforehand. Right. All programmed, ready to go, yep. rock and roll, and nope, customs hung up our wrist wristbands. <laughs> They're so dangerous. They had to go and check every single yeah, one. Yeah, check every single one. <laughs> So is there anything else you want to add, Dustin? Before I uh, move on a little bit. Oh yeah, um, I really, I really think Macrofab's a, a cool concept. Like it's, like it's pretty neat. Uh, it's pretty neat working for, um, for a, such a novel company. Like, like when we first started, nobody, nobody was doing the same shit. <laughs> Sorry, that's the first time someone actually even pitched. We haven't even pitched our company on the show. That's <laughs> fine, man. No, no, no. Uh, no, no. It is, to continue it is. with that, yeah, no, no. Yeah. It, I think that's that's actually a great topic. No, Macrofab is super cool. That's uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, to work I'm being here. completely serious. 
<laughs> no, we're all good, man. We're all good. That's just the first time someone's ever like. I think actually, um, I, I've, I've Trey called... German uh, pitched us, uh, gave us a pretty good review on the podcast too. Oh yeah, yeah. and and, yeah. and I've called out Macrofab uh, for a couple of boards that I've made too. Yeah. But uh, well, and and, and <laughs> this actually works out because this is the first guest we've had from internal to Macrofab. Really, I'm yes. the first. Yeah, you're the first, buddy. Man, that's special. You're the first to choose. <laughs> Probably because you, you can get nerdy like we can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm on that level. Yeah, you understand most of the stuff we talk about at, yeah. at work. Uh, cool. Yep. So, Steven. Yeah. Uh, we'll go into uh, what, what you've been doing this week. And I know you've been working more on customer stuff like last week. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, a pretty fairly intense last two weeks with working for uh, some some customer jig stuff we have some uh some big orders coming through where um making some testing and uh programming jigs uh so been working pretty solid on on getting those jigs up and running uh some some pretty interesting stuff uh getting a, a jig that that has to talk to a panel of different boards uh program each one of them talk to them have them turn a motor uh, and indicate things to a computer, uh, all on this one test jig. Uh, so it's so it's it's not it's not insane, but there's a level of complexity that that adds some time and difficulty to the design. And uh, actually, Dustin's going to help you with the computer side programming for that, yeah. right? Yes, he is. Going to be writing a little Python script. Uh, Dustin is a lot better at writing scripts <laughs> than I am. So uh, uh, Dustin sits about I don't know what. 15 feet away from my desk yeah, yeah. It, it, so uh, I lean over one day Dustin you want to write a script for me <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's that's going to work out pretty well um, and you were talking about because you're using the, the Paradox propeller on that yeah I've, I've used a handful of uh, uh, microcontrollers in, uh, in projects before but I've never used a prop and Parker over here is like Captain Pro- Propeller. Yeah, over I love here. That he thing. uses props and everything. And and I've I've wanted to learn just because the whole eight cog thing is super cool, uh, in my opinion. And I want to get more familiar with it. So uh, this is the first time I'm using a prop, and uh, I'm I'm hoping to learn all the fun aspects that go behind it. But honestly, the so far in the layout of of this test jig, laying out the prop has actually been a ton of fun just because it has so much GPIO and they're all kind of addressable to whatever you want. Uh, so making my layout look beautiful is really easy <laughs> with a prop. Because like if you choose another micro, a lot of times you're stuck with the way their pins are. So you have to figure out the best rotation and yeah, a like, lot of times you have to snake traces and things like yeah, that. Yeah, like this, these pins are the, the SPI or I square C. Right. These are the UARTs. Yeah. All that stuff. Whereas on the prop, it's kind of like, I will make these pins the UART. I will make these yeah. the spy. And that's super cool. Uh, so I, I've been actually a lot of my work today, I was I, uh, you know, laying out a handful of traces because I've got like 40 or 50 data lines coming in. And I'll, I'll see a way where if I just change this one pin to another definition, then all the traces will line up perfectly. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to oh, do yeah. it that way. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah uh, going back from... Your layout back to schematic and changing pins around. And that's what separates the men from the boys in, in layout design. Absolutely, yeah. It, it does make sometimes the firmware engineers angry. Because <laughs> they're like, have to send a, you know, 
Hey, like, hey, we just changed those pins, so rewrite all your low-level code. <laughs> I, you know, if, if if I can, when I'm doing that kind of stuff, I try to, like, like say with a with a pick, how they have the different uh, ports, you know, port A, B, C, that kind of stuff. I'll I try to line up all my signals such that it's zero through seven or whatever, such that it makes sense. But with the the, the prop, I've I've kind of worked a little bit more towards the layout than the pin definition. So. You know, this pin might be on number 27 and this one might be on five, but in the code, they're one number apart, you yeah. know? Yeah, one number apart. And what I like to do on the prop in the prop code is basically do definitions yeah. um, or constants, basically, for those pins. And that way, if you change it, you just have to swap two numbers around and you don't have to go picking through your code, finding wherever you used it. It's got to change at the top header. Cool. So, uh, what you've been working on, Parker? Uh, that, uh, testing pro- more fixtures, programming fixtures. It's just been a, a yeah. fixture week. Well, the past two weeks. Yeah. Um, I've been working on an article. I said I was going to have it done by this podcast, last podcast, but it's not done yet. It's almost done. I have a lot of material done. Um, basically reverse engineering what I did and all my old notes to figure out how to write this article the best way. Uh... Basically going from Gerber's, getting D- your DXF files, creating 3D models for stuff so you can make sure everything fits, and sending off that stuff to, like, Shapeways to get the jig made. Yep. Uh, and then, like, what kind of pogo pins do you need? So there's going to be a list of pogo pins of, like, if you have these kind of holes, you want to use these kind of pogo pins, and make sure everything's, about, you know, the same height in the end. Um, yeah, it's almost done. Cool. And then I've been testing that... Uh, ESP8266 Wi-Fi module. Yep. That uh, makers like really like. I've been really using the uh, ESP12E module. It's basically has that chip on it. Okay. And it's a little like a uh, encapsulated a- uh, module board that you put on your board. Okay. Yeah. And it's already got you know an FCC ID and all that good stuff on it. Just and, plug and play kind of. Yeah, I actually got the board yesterday from Macrofab. Plugged it in, it all worked, and then my friend uh, Roy out in California gave me some code to make it work with Blink, which is that, uh, it's kind of like a IoT platform that uses a web server, so you can basically talk to a device anywhere Right. that has Wi-Fi. It's yeah. pretty cool stuff. Um, so he actually ported the code, because they have a bunch of Arduino code, he ported that to the Parallax propeller in Spin and Assembly. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, actually we only had to do a, a, some slight tweaks to the code and it worked last night. So. Very cool. And it's got some weird power issue, but I think that's just crappy USB power. Because on, like, uh, like on laptops and the back ports on computers, it works really well. Mm-hmm. But on, like, front USB ports, it doesn't work. Yeah, you were saying mm-hmm. it, it when it enumerates it, it does a reset. No, when it enumerates, it asks for basically half an amp. Right. The full full thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think what it is on basically crappy front USB connections is it says it can do 500 milliamps, but it can't really. And so you just get a power dip. And basically, I was monitoring it with my meter and the scope, and the, I, you would see the dip when you're on a bad power, yeah. uh, a bad USB connection. But on a good connection, you would never see a dip. Interesting. So, not all USBs are the same. No, and they report that they can't do power. So, 
What are you going to do? Yeah, we tried it on multiple front ports on on desktop computers, and it it failed on all the, of them. Yeah, and then the the front uh, connections on my computer at home work great mm-hmm. because they have basically uh, power lines going straight to them. Right. They can supply the half amp, but the ones at work they can't. Gotcha. So, I think what we're going to do is basically write some code that it will write into the programming space since mm-hmm. we're not, we don't use all the programming space. It will write a code. And if the prop resets, it will look in that section and see if it's got code there or not. And if it if it doesn't, then it knows it's reset. Kind of like a um, a hacked around watchdog kind of thing, okay. so that you can tell the user, "Hey, you're browning out. You need to switch USB or get an external power supply." So then, if it looks in that program space and it sees whatever your code is, will it write that back to zero? Yeah. So if if it um, no, so what it does is, on boot, it looks there, and if it's blank, it says, hey, I'm booting up. Okay. And then it writes through that space, and so yeah. if it ever looks back into that space again, it can see if it's been reset or not. I and see. then it can report to the user, I'm resetting all the time. Gotcha. Um, and then be like, hey, check your power, because we're going back and forth and cycling. It's kind of uh, weird. I see. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's not really even the... It's when the, when the uh, Wi-Fi module actually starts transmitting... Is when it starts to die because it pulls a bunch of juice. Yeah, it basically doubles its power consumption instantly, and drops the USB voltage down huh. on those crappy ports. <laughs> great, but on a regular, uh, a properly designed USB port or a charger or whatever, it works great. Well, you know, when I plug my phone in, as I have an Android, uh, in the front ports of my computer, it says it gives me that warning message that says this is not the original charger. Uh, if you want to charge faster, please use the original charger. I bet you it's because it's not supplying the yeah. full half an amp. It's probably only supplying 100 milliamps. I, I actually charge my phone at my shop from my power supply. <laughs> so I know my phone pulls 430 milliamps. Yeah. Uh, so it's not the full <laughs> half an amp. No, it's almost there, though. Almost there. Uh, let's see. I was working on that prop fan board. And this is that... Uh, issue with the I had to get that analog signal in but I didn't have a reference to chassis ground and I uh, came up with this really cool idea well me and Chris uh, Chris uh, Steven came up <laughs> with this really cool idea to uh, basically use an isolated op amp yeah to do it and it should work we have to test it yet um, I ordered the board a couple days ago but it should work and I think the the main thing with that op amp is you can only do a two volt input, yeah. So you don't have a huge span like a normal isolated ADC, but you also don't need an isolated power supply or right. an isolated you know spy bus converter. Well, yeah, and it's it's jumping analog across the isolated gap. Yeah, and we think it's doing it by basically it has its own built in ADC. And yeah. it's doing that and spitting it across an isolation barrier. Yeah, right. But uh, we had a really good funny thing where uh, Stephen asked me how many bits it was, and I said, I don't know, it's probably enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> I only need four levels. I need to know when it's, you know, it's zero to 14 volts, but I only need to know four divisions of that. So Yeah, so you don't care. I don't really care how many bits it is. As long as it's more than two bits, <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> Who would use a four-bit... Two-bit. Well, yeah, okay, who, I'm sorry. Yeah, who would use a two-bit isolation op-amp? 
other than you. Other than this <laughs> one specific application. Yeah, that one application, yeah. But this this is a really cool idea. Um, it's a lot cheaper than isolated power supply, isolated, um, you know, IceCRC or spy bus, however you're going to communicate to your ADC, and then the ADC. Yeah. Uh, overall, it's, I think that, I think this chip was like four bucks, and you spend that alone in your isolated transmission bus. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I'm going to do some tests about it and probably post a, a, a little article about it, compare it, see if it actually works well. Cool. That kind of stuff. But yeah. Should have enough resolution. I hope. What are you looking for? Looking for my sheet, because I just noticed the sheet I have in front of me says episode 12 on it. Yeah, that's wrong. And we're on episode 13. <laughs> so you've just been weaning this whole time. I'm, I'm that good. You're pretty good, dude. <laughs> I have another sheet that says episode 12. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll take over the RFO okay, section. Then. Episode thirteen. There, there on to the RFO section. Uh, RFO section. <laughs> so we talked a couple episodes back about the only the good way to find a connector is through pictures. Yep. And a couple days ago, I went onto DigiKey's website. DigiKey's been like changing the website a lot recently. Yeah. And went on it a couple days ago and went to find a connector, and bam, they have pictures in the connectors now. What? So we influence something, maybe. <laughs> DigiKey is listening to us. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but basically, you go on the site, and when you hit connectors, it shows, like, 20 pictures of all the different categories with, like, you, what connector are you looking for? And so it's basically like a picture book for engineers. <laughs> this, this may be the only podcast on Earth where we talk about connectors. All Maybe. the time. All, yeah. <laughs> On multiple occasions we talk about connectors. <laughs> no, but that's that's incredible. Being yeah. able to have pictures. Because, okay, I was dealing, actually, that test jig I've been working on all day, I needed a ribbon cable connector, which I found out are called IDC receptacles. Go figure. Yeah. I didn't know that name. But regardless, I needed that kind of connector and i just needed a it's a standard 0.1 pitch two row 10 pin each row so so 20 total pins i just needed something like that and it's just oh i hate searching for connectors digikey has <laughs> pictures it's like that's the one i want right there <laughs> thank you digikey <laughs> yeah and uh you were talking about a uh at your, one of your previous jobs yeah, he had a a, a a gray beard that had a really cool setup. Yeah, they, they actually the the engineering manager there, he he suffered from the same plight that all of us engineers have in the past. Of connectors are just annoying to find, and uh, I would I would regularly get emails from him where it's like, oh check this connector out. I just found this out. I'm gonna put this in my database, and he literally had like his own little database of connectors where it's like. We can't use these right now, but in a project in the future, this is the connector we're going to use, and let's remember this. <laughs> I'm, assu I'm assuming this thing is like a big three-ring binder. Oh, yeah, hundred, <laughs> hundreds of pages. It's just, just images of connectors. Yeah. <laughs> the connector Bible. Actually, uh, w when I first started at Macrofab, uh, I, I remember I brought in one of the old um, Mauser uh, catalogs. catalogs. Yeah. They, they're basically like a Bible. Uh, yeah. they're, they're they're enormous, because I like looking at the pictures. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 it's true. Is is 
uh, Mouse's catalog is pretty nice. Yeah. But you would, um, if I find a connector that's kind of like what I'm looking for, yeah. I immediately go to the catalog page yeah. because it has all the connectors that are like it in the same page. Right. And you can scroll through and like, okay, I needed this one little locking tab to be this way. Right. And then you can find it. And and it's it's one of those things where it's like, I, no, I'm not going to go to a catalog to look up a resistor. That's stupid. Yeah. But something that matters the way its its shape is, yeah, I would love to see a catalog page on that. And maybe maybe um, we can get like Digikey and Mouser to have like just their catalog printed for connectors, where every single connector they sell, they have a picture of it. Oh man! I mean, that'd be a lot of pictures, but I think it'd be worth it. Just an entire book of data sheets, <laughs> every data sheet printed out. <laughs> that would be huge. Yeah, that would be enormous. But no, just just. Pictures of connectors and their part number. That'd be awesome. Have you had uh, any bad experience, Dustin, with uh, or good experiences uh, with searching for connectors? Oh, dude, it's it's a nightmare uh, finding <laughs> finding connectors that you want to use. <laughs> if you if you don't know specifically what you're looking for, man, it can take you days oh, just yeah. researching what connector should you use. What what's the mating connector that mates with it? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you might find the one you're like, this is great, and then just never find the mating. Yeah, some, yeah. Sometimes I put it in the data sheet. Sometimes sometimes they don't. Yeah. yeah. Or or the data sheet has atrocious um, uh, dimensions. Oh yeah. And I've I've oh. literally I've literally looked at connectors before and been like, this connector is great. I want to use this. And then I looked at their dimension drawing and I'm like, I'm gonna go find another one. Yeah, you know, Molex <laughs> used to be like that for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Where they would have this really cool, like, SD, oh, it was a, while, a couple years ago, but this really cool SD card slot that uh, had a little flip top that you put the card in and flipped it down. Yeah. And it's so it was for more permanent SD cards. And then I looked at the data sheet, and they were missing a dimension. So you could not actually design this footprint correctly. <laughs> and I was just like... Of course. And then I got, like, halfway through the design, and I'm like... Screw it! I'm gonna go with this 3M part. <laughs> they had a properly dimensioned, yeah, uh, schematic. I mean, I guess I could have emailed Molex and like waited a couple days to hear back from FAE and blah blah blah. But yeah. nah, nah, not worth so, it. So actually, speaking of of connectors and and uh, dimensioning, so I want to get you guys feeling on this, uh, wh- how you guys think about instead of having a drawing for every connector they have. And understandably, some of these guys have gazillions of connectors. They make a unified drawing where it's like, here's what the body's going to look like. Here's its number of pins. So they'll either have a chart or they'll have like, if you want to see how long this connector is, take A plus, you know, whatever this dimension times times the number of pins. Yeah, things like that. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, well, a lot of companies already do that. Um, yeah. TI Interconnect does that. Yeah. Molex does that. Depends on the part. Phoenix Connector mm-hmm. does that. Yeah. I, th- I think it depends on the part for that. Do, do you like that, or is that... Um, usually, I would consider that acceptable. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I always like seeing parts... Parker has very high standards for his connectors. <laughs> I know, I have very high standards for data sheet dimensions. Oh, yeah, yeah, you should. I'm really picky about data sheets. Yeah. Um... Usually, I like to see it's it's that part, yeah. Because then you know that there's not going to be the errors for in between, like just increasing the pins. Yeah. You know, there might be like for some reason this one mold's got a weird thing. Yeah. And then in that unified data sheet, it didn't get in there. Yeah. Whereas if it's a specific 
apart, it'll tell you that. Yeah. That's my only gripe. Usually, those kind of data sheets are fine, as long as they're dimensioned correctly. But above, yeah, above and beyond the dimensioning, you gotta go and calculate all yeah. that stuff. It's not a big deal, but it's... No. Dimension to the centers, and all from one mm, edge. Yes. Please. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a point of oh, reference. Man. Yeah. Yeah. One reference point. And, and please, if you're making a data sheet, and, and the data sheet that you're putting out there has, like, some guy from 1982, his handwritten notes on there that have been scanned 800 <laughs> times, and you can't read them, just remove those. Yeah, <laughs> just or rewrite them. them. Well, yeah, right, right. Well, yeah. you know what, most of them, they probably don't even know what it says. <laughs> yeah. They know it's important, though. Yeah, yeah, right, you have to have this. <laughs> it's, um, it's really funny when you go to, like, the really old school, um, the uh, 74, uh, was it, 7400 series? Parts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially, this is especially bad with TI sometimes, and you would go to the part, and the first page is like all like nicely typed up and stuff, and the second page has clearly been Xeroxed from the, the 1970s oh, era yeah. data sheet. <laughs> and you can barely read out like all the charts and stuff that they post in there. It really instills a lot of confidence in you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've been building apart so long that even the data sheets are fading. <laughs> <laughs> the PDFs are starting to degrade. Yeah, the PDFs. <laughs> Bit rot. Yeah, they totally store these things on EEPROMs. <laughs> uh, and then there was a. Uh, oh, we hear about this every every six months or so. But there's a another research group that's come up with a way to put ink into conductive traces now. Ooh. Um, this looks a little bit more promising because it has cool words like gold nanofilm. And stuff like that in it. Oh man, I need some of that. Yeah. So they use. <laughs> I didn't even know I needed it. Yeah. Um, they use uh, gold nanoparticles that are covered in an organic conductive polymer. Ooh. Um, apparently, what makes this different from the previous attempts is usually the organic polymer is not conductive, and so you basically you have to make sure the ink is totally dry. Uh, and actually, you have to bake the the ink to okay. get all the organics out. And so that you're left with just the metal nanoparticles. But they've made a way to make the polymer conductive. So you can just, like, draw your circuit and then wire it up. So you, you draw it on, like, a, a sheet of FR4 or something? Anything. Paper, plastic. Yeah, but you have to, if you have to bake it, then what well, on paper? they don't say how you actually stick parts to it. Um, hmm. I think some people have made, like, some kind of, like, adhesive conductive glue. That they dot down like paste, and then they just stick the part on, and it dries. I mean, this stuff's always cool for like educational stuff, but it has very little, I guess, applications in in electronics still. In the real world. In the real world. Well, you got like actually <laughs> on like on your uh, back of your windows and your cars, you you have that defroster. Oh yeah. This is similar material. Yeah. Well, similar concept. It's ink that they actually silk screen onto it and then it dries and it's conductive hmm so similar ideas but I mean they don't they, no one's uh, doing this and they haven't uh, no one that's done this has solved like the issues of like two layer boards vias stuff that's really simple that you need but no one's done it yet well that's it's really easy uh, say you have a, a piece of uh, we'll use FR4 because it's piece of board material you just draw around the edge to the backside, two layer. Done. You know, you can't 
you, you can't do that yet in modern uh, PCB manufacturing. Can't do wraparound traces. I, I, no, well, I you, bet you, you, you can. can. You can because they can. They'll plate the edge. Yeah, yeah. I guess they could do you, that. You could, you could totally wrap around. Plate the whole edge though, so it could only only be one trace. No, you could, you could mask it. Yeah. No, you're right. You can't, you can't mask the very. You can only plate. So technically, you can only have. You could have a maximum of one trace yeah, that goes around the, around the edge. Whole edge. Yeah, you're one via. Yeah, I wonder. Well, no, no, no. Because if you if it's in a panel and there's mounting tabs. Those you could selectively oh, use those to, to separate it all. Oh, man. <laughs> y'all are y'all are contract manufacturers' worst nightmare. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm you know I, I might have to design a board just to do that. But yeah, it's uh I think I think my favorite thing was the research. One of the researchers that was that's designing this stuff. It says uh, with this ink cartridge, it can be loaded into a fountain pen. I'm like, oh man, what's more hipster than that? Oh man, <laughs> having script writing on your PC. <laughs> script writing that lights up an LED. <laughs> circuit calligraphy. <laughs> oh, and actually, and draw an electronic circuit to illuminate an LED. So all this stuff does right now is light up LEDs in cursive. Well, it 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 can do your wildest dreams, right? <laughs> sure. if, if you can draw it, you can design it. That, that's a Kickstarter. See, they can have that that quote right there for free. I'm giving that one away. Oh, I got it. No, it's it's. Electronics in cursive, a Kickstarter. <laughs> Nobody can write, read, or write cursive anymore. <laughs> no, I, I, I do everything block lettering. <laughs> yeah, right. um, speaking of Kickstarters, uh, a couple uh, about two Excellent weeks. Excellent segue, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks, <laughs> two weeks ago, um, we we had the the sleeve crappy yeah, Kickstarter. The sleeve. Yeah. No, Dustin was going on about that a couple weeks ago, so. We talked about it, and we asked our listeners for crappy Kickstarter ideas, and no one came up with an idea. Aww. But uh, the the current source is a uh, he's a uh, engineer out of Florida. Uh huh. He actually gave us an idea this week. Oh, cool. And his is a microprocessor launch pad kit mm. that is basically a piece of metal, okay, a sharpie, some micro drills, and bonding wire. So you could build and design your own microprocessors <laughs> on the nanoscales. <laughs> cool. And the great thing is he sent us a picture of it, and we asked him, well, what about the silicon wafer? And then he posts a picture of a silicon wafer with a hacksaw and says, this is the add-ons. <laughs> that, oh, oh, is that the stretch goal? Yeah, stretch goal. The stretch goal. <laughs> you get a, wafer a silicon it. wafer and a hacksaw to cut it. <laughs> all right, where do, where do I insert my wallet? Yeah, take all my money. Take all my money. Uh, and I, I like the fact that it's called the microprocessor launch pad. <laughs> yeah, launch pad. <laughs> yeah, that word is pretty cool. Launch pad. Launch pad. TI has a launch pad, don't they? Yeah, yeah the MSP430 yep. and... The TVCs. TVC, and then they oh. also have a C2000 launch pad. Yeah. They have a bunch of launch pads, actually. Yeah, they probably have a lot. Yeah. So you can launch your microprocessor design to the next level? <laughs> Something like that. Something like Something that. Something like that. That's that's some serious hacking there. Yeah. Serious <laughs> hacking. Uh, I think that's gonna do it for this uh, this episode of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, right? I think that's it. Yeah. Are you gonna sign us out? How do I sign you out? <laughs> Y'all did, hey, I didn't tell me this. <laughs> you can't just surprise me. <laughs> He's our guest. <laughs> 
I don't. What do I? What do I say? Y'all didn't tell me. He just. He just led you in. Oh, this, this, this okay. was this was the Macrofab Engineering oh, Podcast okay. with our guest Dustin Holiday and our host Stephen Craig and Parker Doman. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch you on this time. <laughs> Have a good day.